We love many things about our country, but politicians are usually pretty low on that list. Although some in the past have distinguished themselves as good or even great in some cases, based on their skilled statesmanship, their commitment to do what is right, some cases, accomplishments that have had lasting, good effects on our country. But we seldom see anything that comes close to godliness in our public leaders. The current administration, in fact, seems to be well on the way to fulfilling its stated goal of being more in favor of and more supportive of abortion, the LGBTQ movement, and radical economic policies than any other administration in history. Families will be reaping the results of such policies for generations to come. That brings us to a stark reality this morning. That rulers who pursue godless policies undermining our liberty cause us great distress. We're concerned about them. We wonder, well, what should we do? How are we supposed to think about Uh, such power in the hands of such people. Of course, uh, Romans 13 is well known as the classic text on this topic. But we might wonder, are its principles really applicable to a circumstance that is as bad as we face in our generation? We might think that just looking back, things tend to be a little rosier in the past than they seem to be now. Couldn't we assume that that governments long ago were much better than they are across the world in our day? Well, hardly. Paul wrote the book of Romans about the year A.D. 57. And you know who was in charge at that time. The Romans, ruthless in enforcing their policies. They ruled the world. And who was on the throne at the very time that Paul is writing this? It was none other than the committed enemy of Christians, Nero. And knowing that those were the conditions under which Paul writes as he pens Romans 13 makes what he says here all the more remarkable and compelling. We aren't going to find any way to excuse ourselves from what Paul commands in this passage by saying, well, Paul didn't know how bad things were going to get. The Holy Spirit certainly did. In fact, God's role in who is in charge at any given moment in history 
is actually far more personal than that. Our passage today, the first half of Romans 13, tells us that God ordains all human governments. There aren't any exceptions. God picks who is in charge. He always has, and he always will. One day, he'll pick his son and name him as the king of the world, and that appointment's going to remain forever. In the meantime, all, the, all Christ's predecessors in control in any sense, in any part of the world, at any time, are all there by God's appointment. And so Paul insists in this passage that that can mean only one thing. If God put them there, his intention is that we obey. The command here throughout this passage is you must submit to civil authorities. Submit to them. What would that mean? What would that look like? Well, first of all, in the first two verses, it means you must accept our civil leaders. You must accept the reality that those in charge are in charge. And they're there because they are the ones that God has put there at this time. Of course, that introduces some real challenges to our thinking. Could that really be? Paul says that it is. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Not a single one has slipped in there without God not only being aware but making sure that that's who ended up in that position. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There! You must accept civil authorities. Their position is by God's appointment. And he's talking here about individual officials Apparently, of all varieties, at all levels, all over the world, all at once, God is directing, and every time there's a change of leadership position, it's the Lord that's behind that, achieving his purpose, moving his plan forward. This, this seems like too much. How could he do that? Well, let's remember, we're talking about God. He's able. And Paul says he does. He delegates his authority to those that exercise any authority today. There is no authority except from God. Now, let's consider one aspect of that, because that must mean, therefore, that there is no way of gaining authority that is circumventing 
God's plan. That's significant because there are a variety of ways across the world and throughout history of coming into a position of authority. Some do so by force of arms. Some do so, uh, that, that would be in the case of a coup, and those continue to go on around the world. Some do so based on heredity. It's not picking the person that is best qualified. It's the next son or daughter of the current uh, occupant of that position of authority. It's still under God's control. In some cases, it's by vote. And we're thankful that we have a say in our country. There have been some that have uh, uh, wondered if their vote was really, ca- uh, re- really counted appropriately. But even in that case, the end result is in God's control. There are no exceptions to this, which means that the president and every cabinet member and every senator and every uh, representative Every judge, and you go down the line, every state official all the way down to the local level, everybody that has a position has that position because God delegated his authority and therefore endorses that appointment and that further he establishes their authority. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Further, in verse 2, we can conclude from that that any rebellion leads to God's correction. God does not take kindly to individuals that say, I don't care who put that person in charge, I'm still going to do what I want. God, in fact, seems to take that personally. Verse 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul is using a play on words between verses 1 and 2 that doesn't show up, that, that really can't show up, Uh, in English, in the first verse, the command there is to be subject. And it, it actually means to take your stand under their authority. Position yourself. Adopt your rightful place as God wants. Adopt your place under their authority. Whereas in verse 2, the word that is, tra- word, uh, that is translated resists is just the opposite of that. It's the same word, but now instead of putting yourself under, you are stationing yourself against to determine that that government, that leader, that president, he's my enemy. I'm going to do all I can to thwart his Uh, policies, to thwart his law and to circumvent what he thinks I ought to do. 
What happens in such cases? Whoever, God says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist would be, would, uh, will incur judgment. That is to set yourself against any appointed leader that God has appointed means that you would, be, you would be opposing God's choice. It also means you would be inviting God's wrath. The word judgment there is not specified. Is that talking about the penalty that the government would inflict if you violate their laws? Could be. Or is it talking about the judgment that God will inflict himself directly? One is indirect, one is more direct, but either way, God's behind it. Whatever that judgment looks like, whenever that judgment comes, it's God's wrath against someone who will withstand, to stand against the leaders that he has put into place. Well, there are lots of instances where that can be very difficult to accept. Well, over a year ago, uh, Joel Hernandez, serving God down in Mexico, he let us know that God has been blessing their ministry and their little church building in the village where he serves, a church he started, that they're packed out. They are out of space. And so uh, they, they have a plan w- without expanding the exterior walls. They can rearrange some interior walls, uh, he said, and they could gain an extra 30 seats in their little auditorium. Well, that seemed like a worthwhile project. We immediately voted to send some money to them to help accomplish that. Uh, Shortly after that, we heard that they uh, had all the money they needed and were moving forward with that project. Uh, We just got an update yesterday. You may have received this letter from the Hernandez family as well. Hope that you did. Uh, you can get on the mailing list of uh, any and all of our missionaries. It, it costs them nothing to add another name to their email list. So uh, if you'd like to accomplish that and get them uh, right up to date, uh, you can do that. We'd be happy to help you uh, get on those lists. But this letter yesterday included, uh, well, first of all, it included some really good news. Uh, We've known that they have been expecting, and this announces that uh, William Esteban Hernandez uh, has safely arrived. It was actually a few months ago, but this this is, uh, he says, this was actually why our our update letter has been delayed. Uh, Apparently, having a new baby takes some extra time uh, in Mexico as it does here as well. Uh, But then what we might consider bad news is they still haven't been able to get started on the building uh, remodeling. 
And the issue here, he reports, is that there are just ongoing legal hurdles in this process. It seems like an endless process just to secure the building permit. And so here they are, still packed in and having people sit around corners and down hallways. It, it would seem that, well, let's, but what, the frustration of this, the, uh, well, trying to find, is there some way to get around this? But for all the challenge that this is uh, for them, uh, here's how they're responding. They have said, they say in that letter, as hard as it is, they decided to accept these government-imposed delays, but to accept them as from the Lord, and that they are helping this church family accomplish God's purpose right now. See, when Paul says you must accept civil authorities. It means nothing less than that. Okay, then if that's the way it is, then that's how we'll proceed. We get opportunity to do that often in everyday life. The call here is to accept our leaders, the leaders that God allows to occupy an office, no matter how evil they may seem to be, God knows that. Or no matter how inept they may seem to be, God knows that too. But no leader can stand in the way of accomplishing God's purpose. And so we accept them in that role in that way. Now, accepting the authority of officials uh, can't be just theoretical. This has to be very practical. So Paul gets a little more pointed as to what kind of response this would mean for us. And we we see the word obey representing what Paul says here in verses 3 through 5, that you must obey civil leaders. Their function, ideally, is to maintain order in society. And so to appreciate that role, though fulfilled imperfectly, to appreciate that apart from government, as bad as government might be, the alternative is anarchy, is chaos. And that clearly does not uh, fit in with God's plan. So obey civil leaders. Uh, Paul gives some reasons for this. First of all, in verse 3, it's because they commend those who do right. If you do right, you can expect their blessing, their, even their appreciation. Now, Paul is talking here about uh, ordinary circumstances. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Would you like to not have to look over your shoulder? To get nervous when the mail arrives? When there's a knock on the door? 
then do what's right. Do what is good, verse 3 says, and you will receive his approval. Another uh, subset of that explanation is the first part of verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. You can fulfill God's purpose, God's purpose, by following the laws of the land. God's purpose, because he put that person, those people, that system of government into place where you live. And so you follow God's purpose, ultimately, when you do what God says. Uh, Paul says something uh, re- uh, particularly remarkable in verse, uh, verse uh, that first part of verse 4. He says, he is God's servant. God's servant for your good. For your advantage, Paul is saying here. It is good for you, beneficial to you, if you will just follow the laws of the land. Uh, That makes perfect sense. But he says it uh, here in another remarkable way, and that is the word translated here, servant, gets translated a few other places in the Bible as the word deacon. Now, it's not appropriate for us to translate this, he is your deacon, okay? Uh, Deacon is a particular office that God assigns within the jurisdiction of a local church. But it's a good reminder for us that what, what is a deacon? A deacon is a servant. Somebody that God has equipped in a particular way to serve others around him. There's God's perspective on civil authorities. He places them there ultimately to accomplish his purpose for the good of those that are committed to doing what's right. The rest of verse 4 going into verse 5 tells us that they, on the other hand, have been designated by God to pursue those who do wrong. He says, if you do wrong, and God's concern here primarily is for his people, how his people respond to human government. He says, if you do wrong, if you decide to disregard or flat out disobey the law of the land, be afraid. You've got cause to look over your shoulder For he does not bear the sword in vain. In our day, that's imagery. Because uh, our officials do not ever literally wear a sword. Uh, That's not their method of enforcement anymore. But it was in Paul's day. Paul's day, anywhere in the Roman world, you could step outside the door and wouldn't be long before you'd catch a glimpse of a Roman soldier on duty, and he's got a sword by his side. 
and he's not afraid to use it. That sword in our day is uh, metaphorical of the uh, authority that our leaders have to enforce the law. And that can go anywhere from a ticket to pay a certain amount of money to a period of time in jail to to the loss of your life. If you do wrong, God gave the authorities ways to make you pay. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He's serving God when he enforces the law. An avenger. We saw uh, last time, the end of chapter 12, that God says, all vengeance belongs to me, but he can designate an agent to carry out his vengeance. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, that's the penalty, and once again, even if it's the the sword of the official, if it's the penalty of the law that you are experiencing, behind that is the wrath of God. Thinking needs to be something like this. You knew that I placed that uh, that's government, that jurisdiction over you, and you violated the law anyway, then my wrath will show itself in the penalty of that disobedience. Penalty that you'll experience in real time. So you can choose to live in fear or you can choose to live in peace. But in so saying, Paul has actually two reasons in verse 5 for why you should choose to do what is right. The first one, we might call this the, the minor reason, although it's very significant all on its own. Uh, the first one is he says, uh, be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, not just to escape punishment, although that's pretty compelling. Uh, Nobody wants the penalty. But there's even a bigger reason than that. He says, for the sake of conscience. Now, why is that significant? Well, the, the instruments of God's wrath are, in fact, only human. They can only enforce what they know somebody has violated. And it is possible for, uh, for someone to escape their notice, sometimes for a period of time, sometimes indefinitely. And the authorities never come knocking. They, 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 never, uh, they never catch the, the disobedient one. Which is why, for the sake of conscience, is even more significant. 
Because even if you never get caught, God knows. God sees. And no violation ever escapes his notice. You see how that's the big one. That's the big reason for committing yourself. I'm just going to do what's right. I'm just going to follow the law. Now, all of that, you're probably already agonizing over something here that doesn't quite seem to add up, especially when a government has the opportunity at times to do some uh, really wrong things. To talk about an ideal role of government doesn't really come close ever to the practical application of it. Uh, Governments get uh, involved in things. They meddle in areas that far exceed just maintaining order in society. Well, what if the president, some president in the future, signs a law requiring churches to perform, say, same-sex marriages. Are we to conclude, well, all right, God put that, uh, that president and that Congress into place. They passed that law. I guess we'll have to start doing it. But wait a minute, there's a problem there. When the government says, you must do this, and God says, you must not do that, Now there's a decision to make. The apostles faced a similar situation when the Jewish authorities prohibited them from preaching the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. Prohibited them in a public display, said, you must never again preach in that man's name. The apostles considered that. Here was a clear case of a direct conflict between what the human government says you can't do anymore and God himself has clearly commanded this you must do. When God's people are faced with that kind of a choice, the apostles expressed the right response. This is in Acts 4, 19 and 20. These are the words of Peter and John. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Uh, That's so much as to say, we've already made up our mind, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Why? Because God has commanded it. At the same time, the apostles, uh, these two and the others uh, that were were functioning, the apostle Paul, on that basis and say, well, then that's it. This government's out. We don't have to do anything they say anymore. No, it's that one thing. It's only something that is a direct 
violation of a command of God, a clear command of God, not a personal preference, but a command of God. That thing, we have to obey God. But everything else, we still are submissive to the government. That has been the the biblical stance all along. So there is an exception. There is an op- uh, there is an option here too. Well, I don't like anything the government's doing. Well, you can move away. You can you can leave. That's that's acceptable in, in most countries. You have that opportunity. Uh, we generally do. But if you stay, God says you must submit with that one exception. Now, one particular category of laws might be especially tempting to violate. And so Paul moves into that category next. And it's taxes. Oh, that's irksome. Paul closes this passage in verses 6 and 7 by saying, well, it also means you must support civil leaders. Their service, their service ultimately for God receives payment. And and Paul here in verse 6 is simply saying, look around you realize you, even believers, even in a godless society, you are paying taxes. Verse 6 is not a command, it's an observation. It's saying, you're already doing this. As if to say, it's already an established, reasonable pattern. And by paying your taxes, you are implicitly acknowledging government authority, that it's the right thing to do. God's people pay their taxes. It's a fact. Verse 6 says, for because of this, because of what? That's probably referring to the last part of verse 5, because of conscience. Because you know God expects it. You you know that already before Paul says so. Because of this, you also pay taxes. And here's another reason. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Attending to what? Well, that's that interesting phrase. They are ministers of God. Ministers. This word is one that is used for sacred service. There is a sense in which civil authorities, even with godless character, are performing a sacred task in carrying out their responsibilities. Sacred because God assigned it. They might not acknowledge where they got their authority. They might not be striving to serve God, but they are. They are ministers of God. 
performing a special service, and God's servants need their wages. That's why we pay taxes. Their service receives payment. Paul expands this. He, he, he re, in a sense, repeats that, but does so in the fa- form of a command in verse 7. But he expands it some, and he's getting away, it seems, a little bit from just the person to the office. Their office deserves payment. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. All here, once again, every government level, local, state, national, pay the money you owe. Paul delineates the money with two words. He says, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Is there any difference between taxes and revenue? It's uh, literally all going to the same place. But it's an acknowledgement that governments have a variety of ways of gaining their support. Some are direct taxes, and you need to write a check. Uh, In this category would be things like real estate taxes, uh, paying the taxes uh, for your automobile, Income tax doesn't work that way in our country. You never write a check, well, unless you're, uh, uh, you come up short at the end of the year in what they withheld, but they withhold it so you never see it. It's, they've made it more of an indirect thing. Doesn't matter because even in the indirect category, that's the revenue, there are fees included there as well. Uh, airport taxes are just included with your ticket. Road taxes are included in in some way, uh, but that might be in the category of you write a check, but it's included with other things, real estate taxes or whatever. Uh, A a building permit fee. Uh, There are all kinds of ways government collects their money, and all right, it's too many ways, it's too much total, but God's servant deserves his wages. So pay the money they say you owe. You don't get to calculate that yourself. But then here's the expansion, the last part of verse 7, pay the reverence you owe. This is where the emphasis seems to be shifted now more to the office. I despise the person. Oh, but remember the office the office that God has established. So respect to whom respect is owed. If not based on their character or even their policies, based on the position that God has assigned them. Pay the respect. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Those two seem to be overlapping reinforcing each other. One more aspect of this uh, I just want to take a moment to address. Why does God operate this way? 
Why doesn't he put on, in, in positions of authority, godly people? Why doesn't he put the best qualified in positions of authority? We get a little insight about at least one possibility that, oh, okay, that's the way, that's the way it is. And it comes from the Old Testament. This is Jeremiah 5.31, where the prophet observes that, of course, these are God's people. It's it's civil society among the Jews, God's chosen people. And he says, uh, the, the, I'm not reading it here, but the, the prophets prophesy falsely. The, the, the priests are backing them up. Terrible condition. Those in charge are misleading the people. Then he adds in, and my people love to have it so. Now, the my people in that context translates to, in our case, the people in our nation, the citizens. This is the way they want it. Furthermore, taken together with all of us, we don't deserve better than what we're getting. Our country was, was uh, righteous, godly. Then maybe things would look a little different, but our country is not. The reality is that God, in this case, seems to be giving the people what they want. Might not be what we want, but we're part of a bigger picture here. And what really concerns God in this passage is that out of all the people in our country, out of all of them who, yeah, are maybe cheering on the the direction of our leaders, his biggest concern is, how do my people respond? And he has made it clear in this passage that what will bring him the most honor is if you submit yourself. Use what liberties you have, what expressions uh, are, are, are allowed in the law. You can protest. That's allowed in our country. Some countries, no. Feel free to utilize the means that are available to voice a call for righteousness. Even a call for change. But all the while, commit yourself to submit. Submission to government, government as it is in our world today, it is so hard that you are not going to be able to do this without God's help. God knows that. He stands ready to help you with your attitude, to help you with your commitment, and to enable you to please him by obeying what he says. Would you commit yourself to that now?
and ask for his help. Let's bow for prayer. Father, for all the challenges that civil government uh, uh, poses in our lives every day, all the decisions that our leaders make that can discourage us, how we thank you that you remain in ultimate control of all things, including our leaders. Father, we pray that you would conform them to your plan. We pray that you would direct them toward righteousness. Help us, Father, in our responsibility to respond in a way that, that pleases you, that accomplishes your purpose. And most of all, Father, if it makes us uncomfortable still gives us the best opportunity for communicating the gospel. So, Father, we submit to you, and we ask for your help with our goal and your expectation that we uh, adopt this posture toward those you have put in authority over us. Father, would you help us with this very hard thing? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.